RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Well, back at the end of March this year, in our first week of broadcast, one of our great guests early on was Dr. Asim Malhotra. Of course, he was here talking COVID-19 vaccines. And if you remember, at the time, the bivalent booster was being promoted. And I remember Dr. Malhotra saying straight up to our listeners and to me, avoid it. Don't take it. Leave it alone. Anyway, we're, what, five months on from that almost or just gone. And Dr. Asim Malhotra is back with us. Dr. Malhotra, welcome back to RCR. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me back, Paul. Okay, so that was that was then. You're due in the country uh, second half of September on the lessons from the pandemic speaking to us. So we've had that time has elapsed. Things have happened. Where are we at and what are these lessons now that are becoming apparent? Yes, great question. So for me, I think looking over the past few years, um, you know, a lot of people have suffered the trauma of lockdowns, the fear of COVID. People have, you know, uh, lost loved ones um, because of COVID, certainly in the early stages. It was it was pretty devastating. There's no doubt about that. But I think we now can have a, you know, take a step back and look at things with a little bit more of a rational perspective um, and maybe less of an emotional one, you know, in the midst of all the fear of the, of the pandemic, it's, I think, you know, it's human nature, the critical thinking skins, skills probably get diminished considerably and people are also more vulnerable to being compliant. And of course, there were very powerful political and commercial interests that um, had a huge impact on what happened during the pandemic. So I think this is a good time now to take a step back and have a, a look back and say, well, what actually happened with the best evidence we have and what could we have done better and how do we move forward? And those are really what I'm going to cover in my talks. But really to summarize, I think what was interesting since we last spoke, um, one of the interesting things that I discovered, I was there was one bit of the jigsaw for me that was always missing is that where did COVID originate from? What actually happened at the beginning? And, and then how did that... Uh, after it originated, how did that influence everything that happened around the world? I mean, certainly, I'm sure many of your listeners will probably agree. I think there's a very strong case to be made that I think in retrospect, the lockdowns weren't the best idea. Certainly locking down everybody was not the best idea because of all the collateral damage that happened as a result of it, whether it was damage to mental health, whether it was children's education, whether it was the fact that small businesses got affected. So, uh, and the question then is, did it really save many lives? And I, I think that the the evidence for that is that it probably did save lives from COVID, but it probably a very small number of lives were saved. And the overall net harm was probably uh, outweighed the benefits of lockdown. So that you know, that's an on ongoing area of controversy. But I think through all of that, I think one of the more nuanced approaches, which certainly I I have much more sympathy with, with came from the Great Barrington Declaration, people like Jay Bhattacharya and Stanford and Martin Kaldorf and Sinatra Crypto, who I also have got to know very well is that we probably should have had a focused protection approach because COVID was particularly devastating in very vulnerable and elderly groups. So that's one thing. But in that journey that I've, I've been on, one of the people that I met in Australia is considered probably one of their top immunologists, uh, a chap called Nick Petrovsky, you may be familiar with. Heard Nick the was the first, yeah, he's the first scientist in the world, and it was it was mentioned in mainstream media, to identify that COVID had come from a lab. This right. was, this was hum a humanly human-engineered virus. It had not come from a wet market. And in that conversation with Nick, I spent some time with him, and I'm sure he, I know he's happy for me to share this with you. 
you know, I asked him about what, how did this all happen? And he explained to me about gain of function research, which essentially is scientists who for many, many years try and manipulate or engineer viruses that come from animals to see what does it take for them suddenly to become transmissible to be humans and what effect would that, you know, what would be the outcome of that? And of course, it's a, it's a big experimentation because you can't predict how viruses are going to mutate. So from Nick's perspective, and this is something I think people need to acknowledge and understand, this wasn't, in my view, something that was, you know, created as a bioweapon deliberately. It wasn't something that was, um, you know, I think it was probably a mistake. It was it created in this lab in Wuhan, which was apparently a joint American-Chinese venture. And, um, and, and they do this research, gain of function primarily just out of curiosity and interest. I mean, in other words, for fun. You know, dangerous fun. Yeah, sure. But, you know, I, it, it, I agree. It, it doesn't, it, it, you know, it, the, the, what, the his, history of this gain of function research, it was defunded by yeah. the Obama government in the United States because they said, hold on, this is too risky. The American military also had wanted nothing to do with it. But the, one of the proponents of the gain of function research was Anthony Fauci. And he managed to get the National Institutes of Health to continue the funding of this with China because they needed the technology that America had to continue doing it. So that's probably the most likely explanation. And then it escaped, you know, whatever, by mistake, because that lab was under stress, human error, for example. And then we were dealing with the end consequences of that. But at the very beginning, I think what happened was, and, and Paul, you know, listen, conspiracies sometimes come true. But more often than not, there are more rational explanations for why things you know, go wrong, i.e. cock-ups and medical mistakes, human error, human nature. And I think at the beginning, certainly when you look at how the Chinese government responded, when they saw the first strains and how bad it was, and let's be under no doubt here, you know, at the very early waves, you know, the impact on hospitals, and I, I wasn't in hospital medicine at the time working on the front line, I was working in the community, but I have very close friends who are ER doctors in very prominent hospitals who are very rational people, people I trust. And they said they have never seen anything like it in their career. One of them in one of New York's most prominent hospitals said, Asim, my, some of my colleagues died. He said, I've never seen this happen. This isn't iatrogenic because they were instituting treatments that were wrong. These were people who, before they'd even been put on an incubator, were having the most severe type of pneumonia. So I think it's important to go back in time to understand at the very beginning, before they knew how it was going to evolve, they suddenly thought, oh, my God, what do we do here? And I think even people in the Chinese government probably got very fearful and very scared and thought, OK, we will lock down. Um, but of course, they did a military style lockdown in Wuhan. And even that didn't ultimately work. I mean, it contained the virus for a while, but ultimately it spread throughout the whole of China. But I think with time, what was reassuring is that this virus evolved. And now we know that the certainly what's what's circulating now, say, less than from the pandemic and maybe even for the last, I would say, year and a half has been something that's been very mild. It hasn't been causing significant serious illness and death. Um, for many people, it's no worse than a cold. And of course, there is a gradient of risk depending on your age. So that's one aspect of all of it. The second aspect, which is something I highlighted at the very beginning. In fact, I remember going on Sky News in the UK in March 2020. When, uh, you know, they had ordered lockdowns and, you know, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, then said, you know, the, the catchphrase was stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. I had been able to understand, looking at the medical literature, that there was a clear relationship between conditions linked to excess body fat, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, for example, obesity, right, and adverse outcomes from COVID, quite significant relationship there. And I, because my area of research, my advocacy call has been in prevention, but also understanding that you can rapidly improve risk factors 
linked to excess body fat just within weeks of changing diet. I, this is not a long-term effect. You can have dramatic effects. You can send type 2 diabetes into remission mm. within six weeks to three months yeah. of pure dietary changes and maybe up to 50% of people. That's a massive number of people. My advocacy at the time was, why this is this is clearly a a, a, a fast pandemic, acute virus, respiratory virus, exploiting a slow pandemic of chronic disease. Why don't we get very strong public health messaging? And I said this in 2020. This is a time for people. You know, we've been talking about this obesity epidemic globally for the last two decades. We've not really had any big. This is our opportunity to really relentless public health messaging. Eat real food. Do whatever 10, you know, do a 30 minute brisk walk a day, um, really control your stress levels. Although, no, it's not easy, of course, when you have the whole lockdown, you know, imposed on us. This is a time to avoid sugar, whatever. Especially else. if you're and leveraging you're likely, off, you're leveraging yeah. off the fear that existed. You could have leveraged off that fear very successfully, pushing yeah. that message, right? Because it's hard to change habits, usually, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is hard to change habits. And a lot of this is environmental and socioeconomic, of course. But I think that at the very least, we should have at least given people that opportunity to say, listen, we know this is something that is likely to, because, okay, the skeptical scientists among us will say, well, Dr. Malhotra, you haven't got a randomized control trial showing that if you did a dietary change in these people, you then, you know, but it's common sense, Paul. We yeah. know that if you have excess body fat, if you have these conditions, we know that you'll, it's it's very, it's highly in, in, Insulin resistance, la -di -da -di -da. Of course. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's one thing. So that, but and now when we move forward, again, lessons from pandemic, we look back, 90% of the deaths from COVID happened in countries where more than half the population were overweight or obese, Yeah, right? We've got more than enough evidence now. And in fact, very interestingly, and I'll present this data in, in New Zealand, more recently what's come through, which is really interesting, is um, a paper in US and the United States looked at the different diseases and their association with hospitalizations from COVID and and even death from covid and they found that for example if you had high blood pressure so this is comparing people with a single condition versus someone who's completely healthy who doesn't have any chronic disease at all which unfortunately is, a, is only a minority of americans yeah, right. right and probably as i'm sure it's the same in new zealand and i'm sure know new zealand is I, yeah. the figure i can't remember off the top of my head but i remember writing about this in new zealand more than 80 percent of your population is so-called over fat has excess body fat, which is going to increase their risk of chronic I disease. I heard the More figure of um, pre-diabetes at over 80% as well. Wouldn't surprise me. Maybe, so, maybe that is, maybe it isn't, but that's what I heard. Anyway, carry on. So, they, so, so just to give you some very some headline figures here, if you had high blood pressure, again, linked to, linked to insulin resistance, you had a 34-fold increased risk of serious complications from COVID. If you were a type two diabetic, uh, if you were obese, ninefold increased risk. If you had cardiovascular disease, sixteenfold increased risk. So again, it's the same issues, same problems that we've not been managing, which is also driving stress on our healthcare system, increasing mental and physical, you know, health deteriorating. Same issues, same problem um, that got worsened by the pandemic. So I think that's something else that I'm going to reiterate moving forward. And then, of course. Our response to the pandemic, of course, involved with the right intentions, for sure, that there was a belief system early on, the quickest and best way to get out of this pandemic is that we find a vaccine, a safe and effective vaccine, and we mass distribute it as quickly as possible. Okay, That's the starting point, well-intentioned, theoretically a good idea. Unfortunately, 
because of pre-existing system failures, Paul, where there is lack of transparency when it comes to um, medical information, you know, uh, when it comes to clinical decision-making for doctors. When I talk about lack of transparency, I mean the, the most medical knowledge now, Paul, and this is something that, again, most doctors don't know this, what I'm about to tell you. So the public are going to be like, wow, but most doctors don't, this, don't know this. Most medical knowledge is under commercial control. What does that mean? Essentially big pharma who produce, manipulate, and then distribute that information to doctors, then gets translated into patient care. And what? And because we have not sorted out these problems historically, and I've raised this issue over the last decade many times with huge concerns of where the direction of our healthcare was going with an over-medicated population. Because of that, um, a vaccine was produced with lack of transparency on the data very quickly. And we now know, even from reanalysis of the original trials, that it is likely that for the majority of people, Paul, this was going to do more harm than good. Yeah. And and I think that wow. is a massive public health disaster. And my and I've been very strong on this. And you know, just to, for people to understand who don't know me, I was one of the earliest adopters of two doses of the vaccine. I believed in it. To, you know, I had faith because I didn't believe it. You know, I, I'm I'm someone that has an expertise in cardiovascular drugs and all the risks and harms, but. I put vaccines in a special category, in quotes, vaccines. Of course, it was a new technology um, mm. as being you know, the, the safest and, and most effective of all pharmacological interventions. So I presumed this would be the case with this vaccine. So I took two doses. I went on Good Morning Britain to help tackle vaccine hesitancy, but I never pointed the finger. I never supported mandates. We're going to come on to that in a second. And um, But again, situation evolved over time. My dad suffered a cardiac arrest. That was part of the reason I looked at it, into this, but I would have, I've been advocating and talking about all sorts of other drugs that harm patients for years. So that wasn't the main reason, but it was certainly one of the reasons that made me look into it and then realized that there was a huge problem in terms of potential serious harm to the cardiovascular system from the vaccine. And through my investigation, basically, I concluded, and this is my perspective, I'm willing to have debates and be challenged on this, that it likely, if the system was more transparent, given that the reanalysis of the randomized control trials by independent experts suggested more harm than good, I think it would probably never have been approved in the first place. But even if it was approved, there would have been a huge caveat saying we found a significant risk of harm, maybe one in 800, maybe higher, and we should probably only offer it to the elderly uh, people who are older, but we need to give them the absolute benefits and harms. And that never happened. So I think that that's, my, that's where we stand now. And I'm, I'm willing to obviously share my perspective with people. The, um, those things, that, those, yeah. those things yeah. you've gone through. The the problem with all those things is they got it wrong at every damn step. The um, lockdowns. Let's start with that. Uh, get your view on this. In our original pandemic plan, which was completely overturned when this came along, lockdowns didn't feature at all. They debated it, but it had been rejected as a tactic to deal with a pandemic. That yeah. was turned one eighty degrees on its ear all of a sudden. You talk about gain of function. Playing around? Seriously? Playing around with that? I mean, you got to wonder where these people's heads are at. I mean, that's kind of Dr. Evil stuff playing around in that realm, I would have thought. And then, you know, with the vaccine coming on, there were, as it turned out, off-label drugs that were therapeutic and worked and could have been used in most cases, okay, I take your point on some, the elderly, the at-risk group, risk-benefit, you, you, you might look at that. But they were 
purposefully stopped and banned and withdrawn from use for people who, who could have benefited. And so it goes. Excuse me. So it goes on. Every turn, a wrong turn. How do they get it so wrong, man? Yeah, great question. I'll start with the last bit that you just asked about the vaccine stuff and the other therapeutic interventions. I think, you know, I'm a root cause guy. So when you talk about these structural system failures, mm. you've got to understand one other thing. Over the last two or three decades, Paul, there has been increased, unchecked, both visible and invisible power of big pharma. You know, talk about the multinational corporations, but the most prolific and the most powerful of all these multinational corporations by far is the pharmaceutical industry. And their legal obligation, so this is about issues of changing the law ultimately as well, is to produce profit for shareholders. And they will, and historically they've committed crimes, they've been fined billions over the years, most of the top 10 drug companies, where they take, even when they realize from their own data that there is a significant harm, they suppress that information. And they think, you know, we will maximize our profits and we will, it's a cost of business. And if we get found out, if we get fined, ultimately it's still worth it because we make more money from the profits of these harmful drugs than we do from the fine. And that's actually what's happened. There's so many examples of that. People will be shocked. But this was already in existence, Paul. That, you, you know, this is an evil system. Yeah. This is an evil system. This is a system that the, the law has allowed to happen. But the law has allowed this to happen because behind the scenes, over time, the drug industry have managed to reduce the regulatory capacity of so-called independent protective entities like government. They've reduced their ability to do to protect the public from those excesses and manipulations. And this is how this happened. And part of that would be absolutely, and I think there's a good case to be made here, Paul, is that if you think about it, if there were proven safe and effective interventions, such as hydroxychloroquine, such as ivermectin, which by the way, is safer than paracetamol, right? So even if people say, well, listen, we're not sure how good it's gonna be, let's at least give it a go. There's no harm, right? There's very little harm. If there was an understanding, let's say, that this could be effective, it would not have allowed the emergency use authorization of a vaccine, and the pharmaceutical companies wouldn't have made anything from it. They, you know, Pfizer, this has now turned out to be the most lucrative pharmacological intervention in the history of medicine. Surprise, surprise. Pfizer have made $100 billion from their vaccine, Incredible. which is probably also the one of the poorest in terms of efficacy and some of the and one of the worst in terms of its side effects. Just think about that for a second. That is a symptom of a gross system failure. And once people are aware of these system failures and how this happened, we can then implement solutions moving forward. But I, I'm, I'm comp in complete agreement with you on, on pretty much everything you've said. Um, the lockdown issue is very interesting. You're right. So we never had, even the World Health Organization already had a pandemic response that for respiratory viruses, lockdowns will not do much to curb. You know, you might delay things for a while, but ultimately everybody's going to get the virus and it's going to cause a, probably a net harm. To and the and herd immunity happens sooner than later, right? In, in that absolutely. Absolutely. So that was, so what happened, and again, this is awful, often human error. China, China was able to convince the world that they contained the virus in Wuhan. And because of China doing that, because of them convincing the world or WHO, WHO thought, okay, well, let's lock down. And you see, at the same time, I suspect behind the scenes, probably what exacerbated or continued the lockdowns is you've got big tech 
you know, all these other industries that benefited massively from lockdowns, yeah. right? So they would, and they're the ones that are also controlling information on social media, whether it's LinkedIn, which, you know, owned by Microsoft, you know, follow the money back to Bill Gates, whether it's um, Facebook, whether it's Instagram, they then also were able to control the narrative and suppress information and to smear people who were calling out lockdowns, who were saying, listen, the face masks, evidence for face masks is not very good, probably not effective. Um, this is an ongoing debate, but my overall view looking at the totality of evidence, I think at best a very, very marginal effect, probably no effect. Yeah, all the other harms associated with face masks in terms of the mental mental health effects on mental health. We now have problems with people constantly inhaling these fibers from the mass that are causing respiratory problems. Step, all these other things that weren't taken into consideration. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it, it's been, uh, you know, uh, as my American cousin would say, um, uh, yeah. you know, if I'm being very blunt and honest with you and, 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 and talking in a sort of non-scientific way, Paul, I think it's been a complete shit show. Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, probably an accurate way of putting it. So you're going to be here, probably quite a few people in the audience are going to be hearing some of this. Maybe they've heard trickles of it, but they're going to probably going to hear it concentrated first time. You must have been in that situation where you've presented information and, and, and a good deal of the people who are listening are kind of hearing this for the first time and they're sort of waking up that's the phrase that you hear all the time what yeah do you notice that yeah and what's yeah, that effect yeah, like paul. when you see it happening yeah paul no you're absolutely right so I've, I've been all around the world um whether it's south africa whether it's india australia the united states um scandinavia you know in the uk i've spoken on on these topics especially around the vaccine issue and the one thing that i when i did a deep dive into this also, having been on the other side at the beginning, having been indoctrinated to this yeah. vaccine being safe and effective. Well, that's an interesting perspective because most people are, are on one side or the other. You've you've kind of been on both sides, let's say. Yeah. So I have, you know, and I have some empathy for those people to some degree who are still indoctrinated with the narrative. Right. But that's where the the real barrier to start with, because for me, the facts are very clear when people hear them. It's a it's just getting into a position where they're open to just listening for an hour or so to understand everything that's happened. The real barrier is one of psych a psychological barrier. And, you know, I talk about that as well. But when I gave this talk, for example, there have been places where at least half the people turning up are not in part of the echo chamber who are already so-called awake to this. They've come from the other side and weren't really, didn't know what to expect. And I'm not saying this in a hubristic way. You know, I, I, I believe in if you can articulate yourself in the right way, speak compassionately, speak with facts, then you are going to get people at the very least to open their minds up and many people are going to be converted very, very quickly. And that's what I found has happened. Quite extraordinary. I mean, in places all over the world, including India, where I spoke at a grand round at one of India's most prestigious hospitals. Some of the top doctors in the, you know, in India and probably not, the, if not the world were in there. I mean, it's a very um, high tech, um, advanced uh, therapeutic hospital in, in Bombay. And it was just pin drop silence, 200 doctors at the end of my talk, because I was talking about the COVID vaccines. There was the COVID shield, which was AstraZeneca that was used there, but also the Pfizer one. And I, it was very clear by the end that the penny had dropped and they were thanking me and they were like, what do we do next, et cetera. So that for me was a great example where I'm literally speaking to people who are hearing this for the first time. But when you present the facts clearly, then it, you know it, it's very difficult to ignore, Paul. It's very difficult to ignore. Yeah. 
Two questions um, uh, to finish up on. Rebuilding trust, you, you described it, I think, uh, what, what were the words you used before? The greatest medical bungle or misadventure? Miscarriage, miscarriage of medical science, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, uh, in, in kind of, well, history probably is, is fair to yes. say. Yeah. That has smashed trust to pieces in yeah. many areas, and you know because you're, you're on the doctor side of it. Is is it possible in good time to rebuild that trust? And, and it sounds like a reinvention needs to take place for that process to really happen. A reinvention yeah. of medicine, right? The, the best what it way, is. the most, the most, yeah, we are redeeming the soul. I'm, I'm also part of a journey and with other people really to try and redeem the soul of medicine, you know, back to real ethical evidence-based medical practice which has been hijacked and captured by big, powerful corporations who often in the way they conduct their business are psychopathic. And that's really what we're dealing with. So the way to do it, absolutely, I have faith that we can do this, but we have to do it with honest conversations. We have to do it with compassion. We have to do it with putting our hands up and saying, listen, we're all part, we're in this together. Most doctors, uh, I believe, uh, absolutely are in it for the right reasons. They have compassion. They really care about their patients but they themselves are being deceived by having a uh, you know a false faith and belief in the clinical research that is you know produced and published in medical journals accepting it as gospel truth as having faith in it and not realizing that this is being heavily manipulated so we have to have that honest conversation and i think once we do that and we say these and these are solutions moving forward and we're going to introduce, introduce measures to make sure this never happens again or the likelihood of this happening again is minimal, I think then people will start to regain the trust pool. But the longer certain sections of the, of the profession ignore it or become complicit in the suppression of open discussion and scientific debate, the longer it's going to take to restore trust. And uh, and that's not a good thing. Last question. I, I think I saw you on Joe Rogan. Did you go on Rogan? Yes, that was something else that happened since we last spoke. Absolutely. What yeah. was that experience <laughs> like? Just got to ask. Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, it was interesting. Uh, Joe had started following me several months ago. I think it was last year. He'd followed me on Twitter and he was following me on Instagram. And I thought, that's interesting. And uh, and then I sent him a message on Instagram, literally about five days before I did the um, the, the interview, you know, because I was actually going to Dallas to speak at the FLCC conference, the Frontline COVID, Critical COVID Care Doctor conference. And all I said to him was, you know, uh, I'm going to be in, in Texas. It'd be good to have a chat with you on the phone. It was literally that. That's all I said. And, you know, the guy is amazing. He just literally, this is five days before, it was a Sunday, I remember, I met him in the evening. And he suddenly replied back and said, well, it happens to be my day off on Friday. But if you can make it down to Austin, let's do a podcast. It was literally like that. And um, they, you know, the, the the conference people are supposed to speak on Friday. They changed, you know, thank, it was very kind of them. They managed to change my schedule for enough to speak. So I literally hopped on a plane on Friday morning from Dallas, went to the studio from the airport, um, met him, spoke to him for like two minutes outside. So let's just talk. No prep, nothing. <laughs> yeah. Sat down, chatted for three hours, said goodbye, and that was it. And then what is the effect? Then, well, then... listen, I, the feedback has been extraordinary, Paul, to be honest. I, I'm still getting messages on Instagram from lots of people saying things like, you know, of course, people have their own interests and biases, but a lot of people have said that this is the best podcast he's ever done. 
So I think that um, for me, that was enough to, you know, at least give me reassurance that I'd at least not done a bad job. Okay. Well, it's just not everyone gets that opportunity. So I had to ask how that was. So Dr. Asim Malhotra, you're coming to New Zealand. You're going to be in Auckland, I see, at the NZD SOS conference um, the weekend of September 16th. Then you're in Wellington. You're in Dunedin, Christchurch, Queenstown. We will put the details up with the replay of this um, once it's played out live so people can find out where uh, you are and go to, you know, booking if it comes to that. Thanks for coming back on RCR. It's good to talk to you again. Thanks, Paul. I'm really excited to come to New Zealand. I've never been. I've got friends out there. Um, in fact, the editor of the Journal of Insulin Resistance that published my papers on this, which has obviously caused, you know, a huge, has had a big impact around the world, I think. Uh, she's a New Zealander. Karen's in. Okay. So, uh, oh, yes, I, I, I've well. talked to Karen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. She's the All good right. Brilliant. All right. Well, look forward to maybe uh, catching up with you if you've got some time. But in the meantime, good to hear from you again. I'm sure this isn't the last time we'll talk. I'm sure. No, absolutely, mate. All the best. Lots of love. Take care. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.